Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, congressional reporter for the Weekly Standard, Haley Bird, and political reporter for BuzzFeed News, Lisandra Villa. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute here today with two great guests, as my Aunt Betty said, Lisa Villa, who covers politics for BuzzFeed. Hey, Lisa. Hello, how are you? I'm good. And I'm also here with Haley Bird, who covers Congress for the Weekly Standard. Hi, Sam. I'm glad you both are here. We have another guest in the booth, actually two guests, Beyonce and Jay-Z. They're out with a new song. Uh, the song is called Ape and another word for poop. Can't say the real word. Have you guys heard this song on this new album from them? I've heard this song, and it's amazing. You think it's amazing? Yeah. Okay, okay. And Haley? You, <laughs> well, I haven't had time to listen to it yet. <laughs> it's on the to-do list. Okay, so I have many, many thoughts about this new album. The Carters, as they call themselves now, released an album about a week ago called Everything is Love. But I gotta say, as someone who loves Beyonce, Lisa... I don't like this album that much. Really? I, I, I guess I'll have to listen to the rest of it because, I, like I said, this is the one song that I've heard. It's the one set in Louvre, right? Yeah. So they taped the whole video in the Louvre. They shut it down for the videotaping. Uh, and Jay-Z and Beyonce present their bodies kind of like as physical art pieces. It's, that's intense and awesome and amazing. But, like, this song, like, it's Beyonce trying to rap like Migos. Listen to it. I miss the old Yonce. I'm also kind of just like, all right, I don't need any more albums about y'all's relationship. If they keep this up, like the next one's going to be about, you know, the retirement plan and taking care of their parents as they get older. It's just like, I get it. I get it. You're married. Pocky watch it like kangaroos. Tell these clowns we ain't amused. Man, eclipse for that monkey business. Four, five, got changed for you. Motorcades when we came through. Anyway, Lisa and Haley are here with me to look back on the week of news, culture, and everything else. We have a lot to talk about today. This ongoing saga over family separations at the country's southern border, this intense fight over public high school admissions in New York City, and what that says about the state of education across the country. Anyways, let's get into it. Uh, We're going to have each of us, as we always do, describe our week of news in just three words, but we're going to do it a bit differently this time uh, because this week has been kind of strange, and we've all, I think, nationally been obsessed with one story, and I'm talking about uh, this story of family separation of migrants who are arriving at America's southern border. Uh, After, gosh, weeks of outcry now, the Trump White House reversed itself, and they stopped these separations, but there are still a lot of questions. So we decided all three of us would dedicate our three words this week to only one story. Uh, Lissa, you're up first. What are your three words for this big immigration story this week? Yeah, so the three words that came to mind for me were pants on fire. Okay. Just because there were a lot of um, false things said by the Trump administration when it came to this zero tolerance policy. So a couple that immediately come to mind. It's Mm -hmm. Democrats' fault. We don't have a policy that separates children. Only Congress can fix this. Crime in Germany is way up, you know? And so it, it just really stuck with me, like, how underneath 
all of this mess of like the families being separated, it was also necessary to push back on all of these falsehoods um, that were being spread by the White House. And a lot of times uh, White House officials were contradicting themselves and it just was not helpful to the situation. Well, and I think, you know, speaking of the falsehoods that we saw from the White House over the last few weeks, it was so easy to prove the contradiction. You had you know, these upper level White House folks who said one thing on the record on tape a few weeks ago, then they contradict themselves after that. You can just find the tape. It's all there. And you just like there was no even attempt to really cover their tracks. Right. I, I think it was especially egregious in, in, yeah. in the situation. Um, it just blatantly false. So, Haley, what are your three words to describe this story? So I was covering the House this week and they were having an immigration debate and the family separations were a huge part of that debate. Um, we were asking, you know, what are you going to do to address this situation? You know, co- the White House is saying only Congress can fix this. Um, And so my three words are all for show, because Hmm. the House's debate, you know, just was intellectually dishonest. How so? The leaders knew, first of all, that Trump could fix this if he wanted to on his own without Congress stepping in. Uh, Secondly, the bill that they were pushing, uh, which is a compromise bill, they call it a compromise bill, but really it's partisan. They didn't want to work with Democrats on this bill, and it just does not have a chance of passing the Senate. So they know, first of all, the bill that they're trying to pass, you know, can't become law. Um, And then thirdly, leaders wouldn't tell us whether they would support a standalone bill, uh, like something that Ted Cruz is pushing over on the Senate side Mm -hmm. to address the family separation issue. Is there any grand strategy in all of this? Question for both of you, because I'm hearing you both say that it seems as if the Trump White House is spreading falsehoods and doesn't really have their ducks in a row. And the same thing is happening with the GOP in Congress. Is anyone guiding this strategy or is anyone in charge right now when it comes to this issue? Haley and I are looking at each other, just shaking our heads. No, Um, (laughs) there is no like master plan. Right. And even when there appears to be some sort of consensus among Republicans, you know, the next thing you know, Donald Trump is going to send out a tweet and you're back to where you started. That's sort of what happened this week. Um, when the president uh, was supposed to be pushing the immigration bills and showed up, spoke with Republicans, and oh my gosh, that already feels like way longer than a year ago. Yeah, it feels like a year ago. It was Tuesday night. It was Tuesday night. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And and, uh, he was supposed to be pushing this legislation and sort of helping them cross the finish line. And instead, he shows up, talks for 45 minutes straight about... Taxes, tariffs, right. Basically everything other than immigration manages to throw an insult in there about one of the lawmakers that like the House members uh, love. Like they know him. He's one of their guys, especially like the Freedom Caucus guys. Mark Sanford from South Carolina. He recently lost his primary. Right. And I heard a lawmaker say yesterday that the president actually lost votes for this immigration legislation. Um, by doing that. So anyway, so and, you know, that's just like an entirely separate sideshow happening when there are children at the border getting separated from their parents and and they have been separated from their parents and and no grand scheme to put them back together. Not to mention the fact that the president tweeted on the day of the vote for the conservative immigration bill, which failed on Thursday. um, He tweeted, you know, what's the point? What is the point of us trying to do immigration in the House when we won't be able to pass it in the Senate? And he's correct on that because this bill is partisan. But his White House is the one who wants this partisan bill. 
along with GOP leadership in the House. And then he tweets again saying, you know, we shouldn't waste our time on immigration because we should just wait until after the midterms when we have a stronger majority in the Senate, which is questionable. They might not have that. Exactly. You know, I have three words to describe how this story made me feel this week. Game of chicken. Um, It felt like one big game of chicken. And I think that I kind of associated closely with Trump's rhetoric and his strategy with all these tariffs that he's implementing against some of our allies. I think Trump has felt that if he talked a strong game and said tough stuff, eventually the folks that he saw as his opponents would kind of back down and give him what he wants. You've seen that strategy with North Korea. You've seen that strategy in these ongoing talks of trade wars with countries like China. And you've seen it now with Democrats all over immigration. But the thing about playing a game of chicken like that is eventually someone gets hit. And we saw this week as a nation that the ones getting hit in this immigration battle are kids, not the Democrats, not Republicans. The kids are hit by this. And if you look at a president who has a strategy of playing a game of chicken, maybe that'll work. But you got to make sure the right folks are in the car. You know, we have seen the administration say for weeks, if not months now, that they wanted to have a policy at the border of deterrence, of zero tolerance. And... You can say that, but you must be aware of who that affects and what those visuals and what Americans will see when you implement that kind of policy. Another big part of the story this week um, related to just in all the flood of stories that were coming from the border, um, there was a ProPublica audio tape um, where you there were several minutes worth of children who had been separated from their parents that were crying. And it was heartbreaking, tear-inducing. I sat on my couch after like a long day of coverage and, you know, I, I read it and save the audio for the evening. And when I actually heard it, I started crying. Um, And it was, I think that tape in particular played a big role um, in in keeping people interested and and getting people riled up about this. Do we have any idea, to both of you, um, what happens next here? It seems as if what you're telling me is that the House and Senate aren't going to pass any kind of bill to fix this. It also seems as if there are already legal questions about this new executive order Trump put in place to end family separations. So given those questions, given the unknowns, what do we think happens next? So it is possible that the Senate acts on this. Uh, you've had Mitch McConnell come out and say, you know, we are unanimous in our support for a fix to this that's, you know, targeted towards family separations. You have Ted Cruz with the measure. You have Dianne Feinstein. And, you know, I've read reports that they're actually trying to work together to come up with something. Um, So it is possible the Senate does something. But I I don't see that in the context of a larger immigration reform package, which is what the White House is looking for. Um, So it's it's up to Trump ultimately if he wants to sign that. I I guess I, as far as what comes next, I think that the executive order. There are still a lot of questions regarding that. I think that we'll see a lot of chaos from the border and hmm. border and from families trying to get reunited. I spoke with a lot of lawmakers yesterday about all of the concerns that they have mm-hmm. about records being kept. 
And they're being concerned that parents don't know where their children are. Children don't know where their parents are. Children are too young to know and understand what they're going through. We actually put out an article yesterday from one of our reporters um, who is in Texas right now, Amber Jamison. And it's this, this little boy going through immigration court by himself. And the judge asks him, what's what's your name uh and and the child replies es un avión it's a plane he was looking at a at a book and it was heartbreaking mm. you know mm. and so i think we'll just be hearing a lot more of those stories because i just think that when you talk about washington dc dc it's really easy to sort of forget that there are people attached to these issues yeah but this debate has been different because we have been hearing those stories. And this might not be true by the time that we're done taping, but there's been a lot of sustained attention, right? There's been no big Russia story that's like stolen the limelight. Mm -hmm. So anyway, to go back to your original question, I think we'll see a lot of like the chaos of everything that's happening in the border. And that will continue to affect the debate here. Yeah. And I think, you know, I am assuming that the Trump White House hoped that by putting out this executive order that they could end this. But the thing is, it's like once you've separated these families and they enter this thicket of various agencies and foster care systems and states and localities. And at this point, there are families and parents who are in different states. And it is not yet actually clear that all of these kids will ever get back with all of their parents. Yeah, the Washington Post has a good report this morning about this bureaucratic mess trying to reunite families Um, And and one group that's representing 300 parents who have been separated from their children uh, reported only being able to find two of those children out of Mm. 300 parents. And and Mm. that's just heartbreaking, first of all. But secondly, just a nightmare to try to figure out, you know, where is my child if it's, you know, in in Texas or or New York or New Jersey. It's the government is not doing a very good job right now of providing answers to those families. All right, time for a break. Coming up, we're going to talk about a big fight happening right now in New York City over high-stakes school admissions. But not for colleges, for public high schools. We'll talk about what that means for the entire country. I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover Card. You check your email or social media all the time, but Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. NPR's Rough Translation is like your best travel experience. It takes you someplace new, and it leaves you with a fresh perspective on home. This season, we follow the go-betweens, people trying to cross a cultural bridge or change the culture they know. Check out Rough Translation wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests. Lisa Villa covers politics for BuzzFeed. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also, Haley Bird, who covers Congress for the Weekly Standard. Thank you as well. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, before we get to our next segment, I have a quick question for you. 
Um, as you know, it's the summer, which means it's summer blockbuster season. This weekend, there's a new Jurassic Park. Well, ju- I guess we call it Jurassic World now. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Are you guys going to see it? I don't know. I, I'll wait until it comes out of theaters. There's so many other good movies to see. Have you all seen the second Incredibles movie? That's the real question. I hear that one's really good. It's so good. That's what I'm considering going to see. But then I also saw like a story where I think they were warning people that it triggers seizures. Oh. The Incredibles movie? Yeah. The Incredibles. Okay, so maybe I won't go see that one. (laughs) (laughs) I bring up all these movies because like I always have the struggle of trying to figure out what to see. And I try to look at reviews or Rotten Tomato scores. Uh, to figure it out, but it seems like it doesn't matter. Like, this new Jurassic World has a not-so-good score on Rotten Tomatoes, like 54 out of 100. It's, it's still going to be a hit, right? It's still going to be a hit. I don't it know. matter. You could say that about the Han Solo movie, but then it wasn't <laughs> a hit. I'm, I'm just at this point where I'm very skeptical that any movie is going to be good. I go in wow. with the lowest of expectations, and, well, and life is better for me that way because then I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, then you should go see Gotti. It's this new John Travolta movie that has an actual zero score on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I mean, that's an, an only, achievement. It's an achievement. So it's only going to be better than zero if you have that mindset, Haley. <laughs> right? Right. All right. Now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance where we call up someone from around the country or around the world and talk about what's going on where they live. Uh, A few weeks ago, we saw this really weird story in the news. Uh, The state of Vermont said it was willing to pay people up to $10,000 just to move to Vermont. Anyways, they're doing this because Vermont's population is decreasing, uh, their tax base is shrinking, and they need more people. They just need new people. So basically, to get the money, you have to be employed full-time by an out-of-state employer. you got to work remotely from Vermont, and you have to commit to become a Vermont resident. Um, And so this is not just a Vermont story. It's actually a larger trend happening across the country. Our population is aging. There aren't enough young people in certain parts of the country. And this is really an issue in places like Vermont that are very white. There's actually some new census data out this week, and it shows that America's white population is actually slightly decreasing. Anyway, we want to talk about all of this uh, with someone who's actually in Vermont. Uh, we called up someone who lives there now. His name is Joshua Brown. Joshua, are you there? I am. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you this morning? I'm good. You're on the line with two friends of mine, Lisa and Haley. Say hi, guys. Hey, Joshua. Hi. So where in Vermont are you? I live in Westmore, Vermont. It's near Canada in what we call the Northeast Kingdom. Northeast Kingdom. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you do out there? Uh, I work from home. I work for a company that provides uh, IT and services to the federal government. Uh huh. So we're calling you because of this weird story I saw a while back about Vermont literally paying people to move there. Did you see that story? I did. Yes. What do you make of it as a Vermonter? Um, I enjoy that the government, you know, the the local government, is at least trying to do something to incentivize people to move to the state. Um, it is a little bit odd and. Interestingly enough, I found out about it because someone from my company showed it to me, and they pulled me aside and said, hey, have you heard of this? And I said, no, I haven't. And they said, you should, you should call them up, see if you can get anything. And I said, unfortunately, unfortunately I'm not eligible uh, Why because not? I already live here. Oh, but, but like besides that, you do fit the qualifications because you work remotely from Vermont. So like, had you started this job, I don't know, like a few weeks ago, you would have been able to qualify for the money? 
Absolutely, yes. As far as I can tell, uh, the only thing that precludes me from being eligible is the fact that I already live here. Does that make you mad? Um, I do wish that they were doing something to keep people from leaving. Uh, Too many folks who are highly educated and highly qualified for uh, good work wind up leaving the state because it's just simply not here. So I would appreciate it if they uh, figured out a way to keep people in the state. But um, So I'm a little bit disappointed that there isn't a provision in the bill that does that. But as far as getting new folks to move to the state, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. You know, there are some larger issues at play with this Vermont story. Um, There are certain parts of the country where the population is aging, the birth rate's a bit down. And in a a state like Vermont, that is a big issue. Like, do those numbers worry you when you hear that, like, your state is just losing people and pockets of the country, like, literally don't have enough people? It does. I mean, and that's kind of what it relates to what I was talking about earlier in the sense that I wish the folks who are already here, already part of the community, and have gone to our local colleges and schools and know everyone, I want them to stay and bring the skills that the education system has invested with them back to the state rather than going somewhere else. Josh, what are the top three reasons that people should live in Vermont? Well, I think the most important one here is the fact that it is the most beautiful place I have ever lived in my entire life. Um, The the outdoor recreation in Vermont is phenomenal. And then as far as why else you should live here, uh, we have towns are very close to one another, um, not necessarily geographically, but uh, everyone knows each other. Uh, The town I live in, for instance, we all, people go off the road, you know, on the side of the road in the winter, and, and strangers will help them out. You know, that sort of classic stereotype Vermont persona is definitely still alive and well. And if you want to be a part of community, Vermont's a great place to be. Yeah. Joshua, I love your point about um, people pulling off to help each other off the road. It reminds me of where I grew up in Iowa, and now I want to come visit Vermont. <laughs> I it mean, worked. it flat out has happened to me, so <laughs> on both sides. Yeah. So what are your plans for the weekend? How are you going to have fun? I'm going to take care of my five-month-old daughter and love every minute of it. Oh, what's her name? Her name is Flannery. That's a great name. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for your time and for talking with us. And I'll tell you what, I will move to Vermont as soon as you guys offer me a lifetime supply of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. I I don't know if I can do that. I can <laughs> offer you a lifetime supply of pure Vermont maple syrup. How about that? That might work, actually. <laughs> that might work. <laughs> Joshua, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, want to talk to you about how you're dealing with the news where you live. If you want to chat, drop me a line at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. So there's a really interesting story happening right now in New York City. It is about a lot of things, opportunity and race and schools and the test. You're telling them you're going to go to a school that's not going to educate you in the same way you've been educated. Life sucks. So that's some tape of some white parents at a community meeting this summer in New York. They were obviously very, very angry because the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, he wants to change the way that students in New York are admitted to the city's elite public high schools. He wants to rely less on a standardized test. Uh, And it's not just white parents who are angry. Asian American parents are also angry as well. It's unfair. We oppose it because you're against all Asian people. 
So that protest was covered by Spectrum News in New York, and you can hear those chants of keep the test. This test, it's called the Specialized High School Admissions Test, and it determines who gets into New York City's most elite public high schools. And the mayor and other critics of this test, they say that it unfairly helps white and Asian students and that it hurts black and Latino students. Uh, There are lots of layers to this story, and it can actually tell us a lot about the state of education across the country right now. So I called up Anya Kamenetz to make sense of all of this. She covers education for NPR. She's based in New York. She knows a lot about this issue. And we talked it out. Hello. Thank you for your time. Sure. So I want us to get into exactly what Mayor de Blasio is trying to change in New York about the admissions process for lots of high schools there. But I think first we should explain what that system is right now and how it's kind of different from any other major urban public school district system anywhere in the country, right? Yes, uh, in important ways it is. So basically there are nine famous high schools, public high schools in New York City. Um, One of them is LaGuardia, the fame school. Um, And we're not counting that one because we're talking about the other eight. And they all use their own special standardized test to get in. It's called the Specialized High Schools Admissions Test, the SHSAT. And, and, you know, most big city systems have that. If you look just at the idea of, okay, are there schools that are competitive to get into and everyone wants to get into them? What's different about New York is that it is just the test. Um, So there aren't it's not a holistic uh, application process. It only looks at your your score on this test. And that is what has led to this kind of intense focus on the test and the outcomes as a result. These schools look very, very different from the city as a whole and particularly the public school system. So these schools, these eight elite schools, are very white and Asian, and a lot of black and Latino students, people say, are at a disadvantage because their parents can't afford the test prep or afford the admissions counselors to help them apply to these schools. That's right. So uh, these schools, in fact, are majority Asian um, for the most part. Uh, The underrepresentation of African-Americans and Hispanics is really notable. Last year at Stuyvesant, I believe, there were um, 10 Black students entirely, completely, not not a percentage, but 10 black students admitted. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about why this happens, um, you know, I I actually wrote a book about standardized testing where I get into the deep levels of standardized tests and and the assumptions behind them and how uh, students can maybe have a disadvantage because of their cultural background, because of the lack of resources in the schools that they're in, starting all the way back in preschool. Uh, But it is it's a very, very deep problem that people talk about in terms of the inequity and something like, you know, a summer course or a prep program is not going to necessarily address Mm. that. Yeah. What exactly does Bill de Blasio and the New York City Schools Chancellor want to change? Well, uh, they, they don't necessarily want to take out the test completely, but what they'd okay. like to do is um, they're looking at different proposals of, let's say, leaving more spots open for students um, that uh, right now there's a program called the Discovery Program that does let in a few students uh, based on socioeconomic status if they score just a little bit under the cutoff on the test. Um, and they want to maybe expand that program. There's a couple of different proposals that are floating around. Um, it's important to note that there's actually a state law about the use of this test. So anything hmm. that de Blasio proposes would actually need to go through the state legislature. They don't really like doing him a lot of favors. So getting action on this beyond um, you know proposing it, and it's notable that de Blasio did it in his second term as mayor, um, when he doesn't have to face the voters on it, it, it might actually be a while before something takes place. I have seen these videos of these community meetings about these possible changes, and students and parents are 
up in arms, very, very angry. And I'm sitting here hearing you talk, and I'm like, well, it's just eight schools. Why why are people so riled up about this, and what are the underlying issues at play here? Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, what is this about? It's about opportunity. It's about the sense that opportunity is scarce and that it's a zero-sum game. And for many of, you know, the, the Asian immigrant communities that already that make up the majority of many of these schools, uh, they feel like, look, we came here, we work hard, we play by the rules, we, we're being penalized for doing really well. Hmm. And that is a fundamental sense of unfairness that comes out. Um, obviously, on the other side, you get folks like, um, you know, Dante de Blasio, the mayor's son, who is black himself, had an op-ed in the New York Daily News about this. He's a graduate of Brooklyn Tech, one of these exam high schools. And he said, you know, the fact that there's so few students uh, who are African-American and Hispanic at these schools leads to a lot of racism and leads to the assumption that these students don't belong there. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that I really find complicated about this whole issue, the racial aspect of it. You've already pointed out that a lot of the students affected would be Asian students. These schools have a lot of Asian students. But also some of the video I'm seeing and some of the outrage I'm seeing is coming from these kind of upper class white parents like in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And these are people that are usually consistently... white, liberal, Barack Obama voters, Mm. and you see them now arguing Mm. against what people say would be the integration of their schools. Yeah. So this is part of a broader issue that's been happening in New York City where, uh, you know, there's been baby steps taken toward integrating more of the public schools. And uh, it has resulted in this outcry, as you're talking about. And you hear people kind of contorting themselves to say, like, oh, well, it's not about race. It's just (laughs) about, you know, my kid being in a classroom with other kids. But it's not about race. And so, you know, walking that line, I think, is really, really tough. And what we have fundamentally right is a situation where People believe in meritocracy and they believe in democracy at the same time. And it's sort of Mm. hard for them to hold those two ideas in their heads at the same time, where we kind of believe that educational achievement is something that is meritocratic. But we're also giving our kids every possible advantage. We're giving them, right? Like you're giving them the extra time, the tutors, the prep, the enrichment. And then you're like, oh, but they earned their spot. What does it mean to earn your spot? Exactly. Um. But he, but here's the other side of it, though, too, uh, that I, I always feel like, and I'm, you know, I've got skin in the game here. I've got a kid in public school, right? Well, great. In, in Brooklyn. She's in first grade. Okay. And so the the situation there, so I, like, volunteer on my school's diversity committee, and I'm always talking to other parents to talk about how do we not understand that what is necessary in 21st century society is for kids to be comfortable with lots of different kinds of kids. Mm-hmm. And what they're missing out on in a school where everybody's the same is something that you can't give them. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. right? Exactly. It's just that, you know, so we have in some ways what's measured by something like the SHSAT or any standardized test is this outdated idea of academic achievement that is, you know, just your knowledge or, or you know, your ability to regurgitate answers and not – not your collaboration, not your comfort with diversity, not communication skills, not your creativity, mm. nothing that actually people want and that the 21st century workplace wants. I know that New York City is this really interesting case that is hyper-competitive in a way that lots of other places are not. But are there any big takeaways that we can extrapolate that would apply to education across America? Oh, I definitely think so. I think the conversation about integrating public schools as a means of making all public schools better 
is something that is very salient around the country. Um, mm. And you have districts and um, even states around the country that are trying different things. And one of the examples that I wrote about recently um, is in the city of Chicago. Uh, Chicago public schools, obviously, they suffered the consequences of a lot of white flight and moving out to surrounding suburbs. But um, over the last several years, uh, they have been working on different kinds of integration plans. And they actually started with their exam high schools, their specialized high schools like the ones in New York. And they created a formula there where uh, they basically rank all the census tracts in the city by socioeconomic factors. It's like tier one through tier four in terms of, you know, income, family, family income, education, different things like that. And the top students in each tier Mm. get to go into these specialized schools. So you end up automatically with a very more diverse class. The the class really looks a lot like uh, the city. And those specialized high schools, they still maintain really high academic standards. Because if you think about it, you know, the kid who is going to that school that maybe is plagued by violence, that doesn't have the great resources, but they're still beating out all of their peers. Yeah. They're working so hard. That is a talented kid. They're motivated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> motivated. They've overcome so much. They you probably have resilience, all that great stuff. And I think the, the broader question is, right, why isn't there an opportunity to take advanced math and science classes in your average neighborhood high school in New York City? Why yeah. aren't these opportunities there? And why is it everybody trying to bottleneck into eight different public schools? Yeah, yeah. Why can't we make excellent education something that is not scarce? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, hearing you talk about all this stuff, I am so glad that I went to school back in the day and not now because <laughs> it would have been much harder for me. Anya, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Sam. All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bloom with three O's. Is your 401k on pace? Go to bloom401k.com NPR for a smarter, simpler way to grow your 401k. Bloom does all the work for you so you can relax, then retire. See how your 401k stacks up in minutes. Enter your employer-held 401k login info at bloom401k.com and get a free analysis. Use code NPR to get one month managed free. If you're a guy, you might feel like there's a lot changing right now. Getting harder for people to figure out what a man's supposed to be. Yeah, it's very strange right now to be a dude. How do I want to say this? Uh, oh, there's more of a, an eye on masculinity in general, and men and what their actions are. It's not as easy to figure out what it is to be a man. It's tense, for sure, right now. In fact, 60% of men feel like society puts pressure on them in unhealthy ways. That's according to a new national survey of men from the WNYC Studios podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. The survey's in collaboration with the data news site 538 and SurveyMonkey. On the podcast, they're going to dig into this moment of shifting gender norms to hear how men are thinking about how they were taught to be men and what they're having to relearn right now. You can find the new episode of Death, Sex, and Money. It's called Manhood Now. Get it wherever you get your podcast or at deathsexmoney.org slash men. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests today. Haley Bird, who covers Congress for the Weekly Standard. Hey there. Hi, Sam. And Lisa Villa, who covers politics for BuzzFeed. Hello to you as well. Hello. All right, guys. uh, It's time for my favorite game. It's called Who Said That? (laughs) 
I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that, or at least get close. Get the story I'm talking about. Get a keyword. Uh, we'll do three of these, but here's the catch. The winner gets absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm going to win. I'm very, so. You never know. You never, ever know. Here's the first quote. Ready? Does anybody really need to go snow skiing in Florida? Who said that? My gosh. I don't think I... Can I... To clarify the rules, are these elected officials? Are they no, no. anybody? It could be anybody Uh-oh. talking about anything. There's a lot That's of people on this so planet. Hard. There, you are correct, Miss Bird. There are. <laughs> But that's why this game is such a fun challenge. The quote is, does anybody really need to go snow skiing in Florida? Even just tell me what this story is about or this quote's about. Where would you go snow skiing in Florida? <laughs> I mean, I'm from Florida. I've, Where in Florida? I, uh, Panama City. Okay, okay. I've never been snow skiing in Florida or elsewhere. Okay. Um, it's about a mall. I'm just going to give it to you guys. It's a mall? It's, okay. it's about a mall. Okay, so this is a really crazy story this week. Um, Florida is trying to build the biggest and most expensive mall that the country has ever seen. So They're trying to top the Mall of America. Yeah, huh? and, and you're right. It is so Florida. This mall is going to be called American Dream Miami. Ah. It would be the most expensive mall ever built. It would be 6.2 million square feet of retail and entertainment space. It would cost about $4 billion. It would include... 2,000 hotel rooms, an indoor ski slope, an ice climbing wall, and a water park with a, quote, submarine lake. Submarine lake? Wow. I would like more details on the submarine lake. You basically can enter this plexiglass submarine and go under the water and look around. (laughs) Are there fish? I'm guessing there will be. But, like, why why does Florida need this? Florida doesn't need it. I can tell you that. (laughs) Okay. So as a Floridian, does this make sense for Florida? Does it seem like part of Florida's ethos to do a thing like this? Well, in the sense that it's exaggerated and a complete waste of money, yes. (laughs) 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 But I'm not sure what practical purpose it will serve. Anyways, that quote, though, it did come from a Forbes contributor, Warren Schulberg. Uh, He basically thinks Florida does not need that mall. I agree with Warren. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this point goes to no one. (laughs) It's okay, though. It's okay, though. It's time for the next quote. Ready? Yep. Bring it. The term didn't exist, so we had to adapt. Who said that? The Department of Homeland Security Secretary. You could very well be right this week, but no. It is about another big news event that we kind of haven't been focused on given domestic affairs. But what is the biggest story across the world right now? It's a sporting event. Oh, soccer. The World Cup. The World Cup. Okay. Who does that go to? Haley or Lisa? We work together. We're a team. Yeah. Oh, I, well, then... then split, just split it. Okay, so then you both have half a point. Great. <laughs> <laughs> this quote is from Luis Soto, um, and he was working with Peru. Uh, they were in the World Cup this year for the first time since 1982, and he um, did commentary for the game in his native language, which is Quechua. This is um, an ancient Peruvian language. It was developed by ancient Incas. And in this language, though, some words don't have 
words, if that makes sense. Like, there's no word for soccer ball. So Soto used a word for it that basically means leather ball or sphere. He also used, like, different metaphors in this language uh, to describe the game. So when a player kicked the ball with lots of power, he would say that the guy has eaten a lot of quinoa. (laughs) It's so this cute. Amazing. Yeah. I'm adopting that into my <laughs> right? vocabulary. Right? And so there was this um, Peruvian soccer star named Edison Flores. And when he scored this really important goal against Ecuador to help the team qualify for the World Cup, this guy Luis Soto said that uh, Flores, quote, built roads where there were only narrow walking paths. Wow. That's so sweet. It's very poetic. It's very poetic. Yeah, I love that. All right? Sad fact the U.S. did not qualify for the World Cup this year. It's not very surprising, though. Hey now. <laughs> I am originally from Mexico. Like we're in Mexico. So Chihuahua. Okay. Uh just just south of um Texas actually. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I have another team. So I'm cheering from Mexico. Okay, okay. Ready for the last quote? Mm-hmm. It's also sports, giving you a hint. Okay. Oh, okay, thank you. The quote is it just came out of nowhere and hard. The hot dog bounced off my face and into the other seat. <laughs> Was there a hot dog eating competition of some sort this week? No, but there was a hot dog situation (laughs) at a sporting event. Guess the sport, and I'll give you the point. Baseball? Yes! Okay, there we go. Um, This happened in Philadelphia. So that quote is from Kathy McVeigh. She was at a Philadelphia Phillies baseball game this week where she was literally hit by a flying hot dog. Wow. She had to go to the hospital. Where did did the hot dog originate? The mascot for the Phillies, the Philly fanatic. (laughs) He he regularly launches frankfurters into the crowd with like a hot dog shooting machine. Ah, okay. It's one of those. (laughs) Yeah. So you know how sometimes at at these games there'll be like the the, like t-shirt gun? T-shirts seem safer. Yeah. They have a hot dog gun. That's messy. Right? They shoot these hot dogs into the crowd. Usually folks can swat them away and it's funny. Um, But this woman, she had a shoulder injury. And she couldn't move her arm fast enough to swat the hot dog away. It hits her in the face. She has a hematoma. She has to go to the hospital. Oh, no. Apparently, it's kind of ended nicely. Um, The Philadelphia Phillies offered Kathy McWay a free game. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you what. Kathy, how about you don't go back? It ain't safe. It ain't safe. Kathy, you can get a season's worth of tickets at least. (laughs) So you're saying she should dream bigger. With legal action? Dream big, Kathy. Dream big. (laughs) Uh, who got that last point? Was it you, Lisa? I think it was Lisa. Okay. Yeah. Lisa, I, you you won. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. On, on sports questions, no less. Well, you know, just take the win. I'll take it, yeah. All right, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. Each week I ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's take a listen. Hi, Sam. This is Boulder from Asheville, North Carolina. And the best thing that happened to me this week was that this week happened. Hi, Sam. This is Amelia in Washington, D.C. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I got to babysit a tiny puppy. My husband and I found out we're expecting our first child. United Airlines found the Kindle that I left on board last month and sent it back to me. We were able to celebrate my father's 89th birthday in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, with all three of my brothers who are scattered all over the country. I found out I was pregnant a week after getting into grad school, and this last Sunday I walked for commencement earning my MSW with my 20-month-old daughter watching. Hi Sam, this is Gil calling from a park in Johnson County, Iowa. 
The best thing to happen to me this week was finding the first black raspberry of the season. Hi, this is Mary Beth Ravis with my fabulous fifth graders in Canton, Michigan. Every week at class meeting, we would share the best part of our week inspired by your podcast. Now we can finally say that the best part of our week is... Hey Sam, this is Becca from Scottsdale, Arizona, and the best thing that happened to me this week is that my dad came home from the hospital with a brand new lung after transplant surgery. He's finally able to walk more than five feet on his own, and he was able to go and see his backyard and smell flowers and look at the green grass for the first time in as long as I can remember. It's been a really, really awesome week. Thanks so much. Bye, Sam. Bye. Can you say bye, Sam? Oh, every week it gets me. But I tell you what, Boulder, with those wor- with those wise, wise words, the best thing that happened this week was that this week happened. I like that. Damn, those were so good. It's so yeah. good to hear good news. Especially this week, no? It just feels good to hear good news. You're right. You're right. Uh, thanks to all the voices you heard there. Boulder in Asheville, uh, Amelia, Emily, Ayelet, Norm, Erica, Gil, Mary Beth in her fifth grade class, congrats to you guys on your graduation. I'm proud of you guys. Uh, and Becca, I'm excited for your father's new long. Thank you all. We listen to all of these that come in. We can't share them all, but we hear them all. Uh, send your best thing all week, any week, at any time throughout the week to samsanders at npr.org. Record your voice, send the file to me at samsanders at npr.org. All right, two of the best parts of my week were my panel this week, Lisa Villa, who covers politics for BuzzFeed, and Haley Bird, who covers Congress for the Weekly Standard. What was the best part of your weeks? You know what? I am. I think I'm ready for the weekend. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> going to be the best part. I hear you. Haley? Well, my sister had, it's, it's technically not this week, but it was over the weekend, last weekend. My sister mm-hmm. had her bridal shower, so I got to go home for that. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, all right, we're going to go out with some Beyonce and Jay-Z, a.k.a. The Carters. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with help from Kumari Devarajan. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. We had additional editing help from Jeff Rogers. Our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, refresh your feeds Tuesday morning for a chat that I had recently with Joe Morton. You probably know him as the father of Olivia Pope on ABC Scandal, a.k.a. Papa Pope, but he is so much more than that. We talk about his long, illustrious career and his work on stage right now as Henry IV. Uh, he also taught me how to do those amazing scandal monologues that he's famous for. Uh, all right, listeners, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Ah!